Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, and welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Interviews with Experts podcast. I am Greg Barsness, an interventional and critical care cardiologist at Mayo, and I'm thrilled to be joined here by Dr. Fahad Suja, Assistant Professor in the Division of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, in the USA. Fahad attended medical school at the Aga Khan University in Pakistan. He ultimately underwent general surgery residency at the Mass General Hospital in Boston, followed by fellowship in vascular surgery at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, also in Boston, and then had an advanced endovascular aortic fellowship at the Klinikum Sud in Nuremberg, Germany. Fahad's research focuses on the role of senescent cells and macrophages in atherosclerosis. And as practice chair in vascular surgery, he is using this vascular clinical and research experience to expand the limb salvage program at Mayo Clinic here in Rochester, centered on the multidisciplinary collaborative care of these patients. Welcome, Fahad. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. It's really a pleasure to, to, to uh, be talking with you. I think we'll, we'll jump right in. I, the prevalence and clinical impact of peripheral arterial disease, your specialty, is having uh, increasing impact in our care of patients and in the recognition of uh, disease substrates and how, how these patients uh, are best cared for. Given this increase in, in the clinical impact, what can you tell us about uh, what's being done, what has been done as far as research and clinical care of patients with peripheral arterial disease? Absolutely. And thank you for for that question. I think it sets us up nicely for the topic of the podcast today. So peripheral arterial disease affects over 200 to 250 million people worldwide. And these are the ones who have been diagnosed. I'm sure there's many more who don't know they have peripheral arterial disease. These patients have severe cardiovascular medical conditions and and, uh, have multiple hospital admissions and both surgical and endovascular needs. Critical limb-threatening ischemia, which is the more severe form of peripheral arterial disease, carries the second highest mortality for a diagnosis after pancreatic cancer. It is also the second leading cause of mortality in the world in numbers after lung cancer. So clearly the impact is vast, and uh, that is specifically the reason why multiple specialties have invested uh, hugely towards understanding the pathogenesis of peripheral arterial disease uh, and trying to identify best forms of treatments. Uh, Now, briefly about that, there is the optimal medical therapy, which includes anti-hyperlipidemics, anti-thrombotics, dietary protocols, control of cardiovascular risk factors, uh, having an active lifestyle. And then there is the ever hotly contested subject of revascularization. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that later in this session. Uh, But timely revascularization remains the number one predictor of limb salvage in patients with critical limb-threatening ischemia, uh, whereby in the absence of a timely revascularization, the annual incidence of major limb amputation could be anywhere up to 25%. uh, and, And these are 
patients who uh, not only reap the cost of their own health, but their families suffer psychosocial burden of caring for these patients. So I think so, the subject is uh, very important for all of us. So, so that, I mean, that, and that's very interesting. So I'd like to go back to the medical issue because medications, while they're important, and obviously across the vascular bed, across the vascular tree, we uh, know the importance of good optimal medical therapy as background therapy for event prediction. But CLTI, critical limb threatening ischemia, you know, it can't be cured by medical therapy. Maybe, maybe delve into that just a little bit more. You mentioned it, but revascularization is a mainstay of limb salvage and improvement in morbidity and mortality for these patients. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it is important to understand that while the role of medical therapy cannot be denied, uh, once PAD reaches the stage of critical limb-threatening ischemia, uh, which means either uh, rest pain, tissue loss, or gangrene, uh, revascularization becomes critical to salvage the leg, which is the ultimate aim of anybody caring for this patient population. So in terms of revascularization, we have two broad categories of procedures. One is surgical interventions, more commonly known as a surgical bypass. And the other is the uh, area of endovascular procedures, which is an ever-increasing list of techniques, technologies to improve circulation, to improve perfusion. It started off in the 1960s with plain balloon-based angioplasties and then have evolved with the introduction of stents of different kinds. And nowadays, we're going even beyond the subject of balloon angioplasty versus stent angioplasty, going into mechanical and pharmacological lesion modification. So it's a very exciting area of both clinical and basic science research. But yes, you are right, you know, timely revascularization. Without that, limb salvage is not possible with medical therapy alone. Well, let's go into that then. So uh, you mentioned two broad categories of revascularization, endovascular and surgical uh, revascularization bypass. Tell us what, what has been looked at in the past. What's the background for data regarding the relative benefits and efficacy of those therapies? And what's been uh, developed, what's been understood more recently? That is... Uh... And an area uh, where you know level one randomized clinical trials have unfortunately really lagged behind. You know when you compare to some of the burning questions in the coronary uh, space, we have a plethora of you know really high quality data to guide our our treatments endovascular or open with peripheral arterial disease and specifically with critical limb threatening ischemia. We don't have that many. Uh, level one randomized clinical trials to, to tell us which is the better way to treat. Before the best CLI trial, which I know will be a subject of our conversation today, Greg, there was the basal trial, which was performed across 27 different hospitals in the UK in the early 2000s. This was a bypass versus angioplasty and severe ischemia of the leg trial, a basal trial. Over 450 patients across 27 hospitals in the UK were randomized to bypass surgery or balloon angioplasty. Now, again, this is early 2000, so we did not have the kind of advanced endovascular tools that we have of our armamentarium today as we did back then. So balloon angioplasty was pretty much it. 
when it came to endovascular techniques. And the trial had some interesting findings. Uh, when they first published their data about two-year follow-up, they did not find any significant difference between the two approaches when it came to amputation-free survival or overall survival. Uh, the group then went on to publish another follow-up where now they extended the follow-up to up to up to five to seven years. And they found that patients who survived beyond two years, there was a trend towards improved amputation-free survival or overall survival in the surgical bypass arm versus the balloon angioplasty arm. So again, not exactly level one data, but at least it gave us some idea of the long-term superiority and benefits of bypass surgery compared to endovascular surgery. Again, remember this is early 2000s and endovascular treatment is limited to balloon angioplasty only. Yeah, very important point. And so now we do have more recent data available to us uh, using more contemporary techniques, both for surgical revascularization and endovascular revascularization. Uh, the best data we have to date is, in fact, uh, referred to as the best CLI trial. Maybe you can tell us what this trial was meant to demonstrate and uh, what it found. Absolutely. Recognizing the lack of clarity on the relative uh, advantages and disadvantages of the two treatment modalities, the best CLI was a prospective uh, a randomized study done across three continents in patients with critical limb-threatening ischemia. Uh, the trial had originally anticipated enrolling 2,100 patients, but due to financial reasons, funding reasons, uh, they ended up enrolling 1,830 patients. It essentially was two separate prospective uh, randomized trials, Greg. So cohort one was patients with critical limb-threatening ischemia who had adequate length of their saphenous vein to be used for a bypass conduit purposes. And cohort two was one that lacked that single segment saphenous vein conduit. Now, to qualify to be enrolled in the study, two separate physicians worst with both open and endovascular techniques had to agree that the patient would be considered for either approach in their institution in their hands. And, and that was a prerequisite to be considered. So, so to summarize, uh, best CLI, patients with critical limb-threatening ischemia who would be considered for either approach, open or endovascular, were then randomized into cohort one, which included patients with usable, uh, usually long enough, great saphenous vein, and uh, cohort two, which did not have uh, suitable saphenous vein conduit, and you would have to rely on alternative conduits like a cryograft or a prosthetic graft. That ended up being cohort two. And then they were followed for median of about 2.7 years in cohort one and 1.6 years in cohort two. Uh, and the primary uh, outcome of interest uh, was a composite outcome. And that, 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 that has to be said. It was a composite outcome of major adverse limb events, uh, which was defined as amputation above the uh, ankle or a major limb re-intervention. And the reintervention could be defined as formation of a bypass graft or revision of a graft, thrombectomy, thrombolysis, and death. So composite outcome was death and then major adverse limb events. That's terrific. So uh, a complicated trial. So I, I, I think I remember five years of enrollment, didn't quite meet 
pre-specified enrollment uh, levels, uh, but did have some really fascinating findings and uh, I, I think important findings. So that leads to the question, how can we interpret this data in the context of our clinical practices? What is, how do we bring this to bear on our, on our patients and what, uh, what might be available for the future? Yes, uh, you know I think Best CLI is here to stay. Uh, it, it it is now it is now published data, and 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 I think we have to dive deep into the patient populations. You know, they the 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 trial strategists did 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 a good job at pre-selecting cohorts like patients with predominantly infrapopliteal disease versus uh, femoropopliteal disease, patients with uh, chronic kidney disease versus not, diabetes versus not. So I think, I think we should stay tuned for more publications by the best CLI group, you know, trying to understand, you know, what is it about uh, critical limb ischemia, this patient population, at least in the trial, that lent itself poorly to endovascular therapy. Was it about patient selection? Was it about treatment selection? Is it a treatment bias and a proceduralist bias? It, those those things will, I think, uh, take time to to pan out. But they but but you know, in my offline communications with the trial committee, uh, there is every effort to dissect the data out, you know, piece by piece, bit by bit. Uh, that is very encouraging. That there is more to learn uh, from this trial. And then I think it, it really points to the, uh, the value of uh, screening for venous conduits in patients with critical limb-threatening ischemia. You know, I think there is, uh, there is data out there that uh, roughly uh, 25 to 40% of CLTI population, especially the Hispanic and the Black population, do not get vein mapping prior to having major leg amputation. Right. And is that a so, cost issue or is it a uh, style issue? Is it? I think it's failure to recognize the value of surgical bypass. I think over time, the pendulum continues to swing from one end of the procedure spectrum to the other. So I think best CLI, if nothing else, it really re-emphasizes the value of an appropriately performed bypass with good conduit. You know, so, you know, there have been all sorts of concerns about the morbidity of a bypass, the mortality around a bypass. And at least in best CLI, we find that that is not the case. You know, the major cardiovascular postoperative events were identical, not statistically different. So I think I think that's a, a big takeaway that patients with critical limb-threatening ischemia need to be evaluated for presence of uh, venous conduit. And if so, then we need to assess their surgical risk. You know, we mm -hmm. found out that at least in the first publication, they, the authors did provide some clue as to what's to come, where they said that across multiple patient subcategories, this superiority of bypass versus endovascular prevailed, except patients over the age of 80, patients with chronic kidney disease, patients with a prior ipsilateral revascularization. I think that we should not see, or at least I don't see best CLI as uh, choosing between surgery and endovascular. I think they should not be seen as contradictory to each other. I think they should be seen as complementary to each other. And I think that's that's what we need to we need to wait until further data comes out is who were the patients that exhibited a high rate of endovascular failure 
What was it about them that led to that high failure rate? What can we learn from them? And vice versa for surgical group too. That's great. So a lot left to learn. So we've, we've learned a lot. We uh, understand the safety and feasibility of these procedures, I think in expert hands with good experience, uh, with proper pre-procedural planning. I think both of these procedures can go well, especially with the newer tools and techniques available. And with just one minute to go, I think, for what, what do you think the future does hold? So revascularization is important. What, what can we do beyond that? We live at a time where I can't drive from work to home without hearing about chat GPT. So uh, <laughs> I think I think I think we are getting more sophisticated with data collection as well as data review and data translation. In my opinion, you know, we're gonna start treating CLTI patients like like patients with cancers, you know, we're gonna have to account for lesion length, lesion location, lesion type, calcification versus fibrosis. Um, and then individual treatment paradigms will develop uh, with that data, data review to suit individual patients, where if you have a 50 centimeter severely calcified lesion involving the popliteal and tibial arteries, we might find out that surgical bypass is the better way to go. And there's no sense in trying endovascular procedures because they are unlikely to give you durability versus a patient with a 50 centimeter femoropopliteal lesion that is largely thrombotic slash fibrotic, endovascular will have a shot. It might end up being a cost-effective strategy. So when it comes to the future, I think we have to understand the biology and the physiology of individual lesions. We also have to understand our own capabilities. I think every institution needs to take a look inside and look at its own technical success rate, conversion rate of endovascular and open, and then use that to offer the best treatment for our patients so that we can save them from unnecessary procedures. That's terrific. Uh, I think that the future does look bright. A lot of new opportunities evolving, a lot of new strategies. AI is certainly going to play a role in revascularization selection, as well as additional new therapies. And I, for one, join you in being very excited about, uh, about the future. So, Bahad, thank you very much. On behalf of our Mayo Clinic colleagues, I appreciate your willingness to discuss this, and I want to thank everyone for their attention. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be with you, Greg. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.